1: adjustments so that you can hear me, I can hear me, but neither one of us is overly distracted by the fan that's blowing on me without which I would melt into a pool of cytoplasm. Is that a word? I forget what it means but I think that's what I'd melt into a pool of and um, we're also not distracted by the long tail boats that are going back and forth out in the bay in front of me. Pretty far away, but they're extremely loud. If you've never seen long-tail boats, it's a thing in Thailand. I don't know if they have them elsewhere in the world, but they're definitely sort of one of those classic Thai visions that you'll see in postcards and travel brochures and that kind of thing. They're these long boats that they've figured out how to mount a car engine on the back of it with a long axle and the car engine is mounted on a pivot with um like a lever and the guy stands there and because it's it's balanced so perfectly on this pivot the guy can just push down on the lever and lift the propeller out of the water and the propeller is like maybe 20 30 feet away from the engine it's a long axle and so to pivot the boat you sort of lift you press down lift that propeller out of the water and then you know turn and drop it back in and the boat will make a really nice tight turn it's a very uh efficient interesting kind of like admirably um worked out it's like a hack a really good hack the problem is of course they're running car engines with no mufflers. So if you've heard, you know, your dumbass neighbor drive down the road with his muffler broken, that's what it sounds like. It's It's funny how different cultures have sensitivities to different things, you know, like um when I first got to Spain, it was very frustrating. I love Spain obviously. I decided to, you know, live there for a good chunk of my life. But there were definitely things You know, I love things that Spanish people were aware of that it seemed American culture ignored. Like, for example, you know, the the beauty of smaller portions of better food. Right. Like there's no all you can eat. It's not that kind of a culture. It's not how big the, you know, the super duper gulp is or the, you know, giant beer beer. Pong, whatever the fuck. It's just like, hey, here's some good wine. Here's good beer. Here's good ham. Here's good cheese. This is good olive oil. And if it's not good, I don't want it. There's no point. I'm not saying there's no fast food in Spain. I'm just saying the essence of Spanish culture is very much about quality over quantity. And that's something that jumped out at me. But on the other side... There's some weird shit in Spain. Like, they seem to have no awareness of light. So, you'll have a restaurant with really nice food, but fluorescent light, like you're in a fucking hospital corridor or something. Um, And noise was another one. They cruise around in Barcelona, in the city, these dumbass teenagers with these, like, 125cc stupid little bikes. And they take the muffler off to make it sound big and like they're on fucking harleys or something and you're lying there in bed at night at midnight and it's just like (laughs) going through it's like what are they how has no one stopped this or dog shit barcelona dog shit everywhere like the idea that you pick up after your dog totally foreign yeah and i could go on and on (laughs) and I know a lot of you just said I know you can I know you can um but it's just an interesting thing to sort of notice how like oh the Dutch they really get light like if you're in Amsterdam especially in the winter when it's dark and rainy you walk by these cafes and bars and it's just the light is so golden and warm and you just want to go in and hang out and there's like carpet over the tables and everything looks textured and soft and dark wood and it's like oh yeah you know let me just go chill in there for a while or not chill it's the opposite of chill warm you know cozy um anyway so that's a long aside that's a tangent first tangent of the day about the long tail boats this is an interesting episode i say it every time i know i do um but this is uh, a conversation I had a few weeks ago with Rachel Krantz, who uh, has written a book called Open, and the book's just come out a few days ago, so we agreed I would I would hold the interview and, and release it um, closer to her book's release date, so it just came out uh, three days ago, I think. And uh, the book is about an open relationship that she had, and so it's a book in a sense about some of the challenges of open relationships it also was a relationship that involved um power uh dominance and submission and um sort of an awakening of certain aspects of her sexuality um so it's a very interesting book it's it's it's, you know, it works on different levels. On one level, it's extremely personal. It's only about her and this man and the thing that they developed together. And um, I'm not giving anything away. It, ultimately, it turned out to be, at least from her current perspective, uh, destructive. Um, uh, maybe she would say abusive. I don't remember if she used that word but definitely not a relationship that she wanted to stay in. On the other hand, she learned a lot from it. She learned a lot about herself. She learned a lot about non-monogamy and so on. So it's very personal. And then it's also sort of like, okay, what is non-monogamy? How does that work? What is BDSM relationship dynamics? How do they work? Um, And I think the danger of the book is that people will look at it and say this is a book about how open relationships don't work Um, and I know Rachel didn't intend for it to be that um, but of course it can be taken that way I read a review and I think it was the independent in the UK that popped up on my feed and um, because it mentioned sex at dawn and I have a google search thing that pops up when some some newspaper or magazine mentions sexaton. Anyway, it uh, it was really interesting. It was super dismissive. And the author said, you know, she talks about the difficulties of this relationship and how, you know, she felt disrespected and exploited and so on. And yet it never occurs to the author that this wasn't a problem with the relationship. This was a problem with non-monogamy. <laughs> you could hear the scoffing and i'm thinking well who the fuck who the fuck looked at you know bill and um hillary and said the problem here isn't bill the problem is monogamy i mean i that's what <laughs> that's what i thought <laughs> but i don't think anybody else thought that and so for this woman the the author of the of the piece of the, the review to just flip it around and say like, you know, how absurd it is that this person would think that the issue was with the way they were enacting this type of relationship rather than the type of relationship itself. I mean, that seems so disingenuous to me because fucking nobody does it the other way. And I'm honestly, I'm not saying we should, because I don't think monogamy is a bad way to live, but nor is non-monogamy. A bad way to live is a way that's dishonest and exploitative and cruel and ignorant. That's a bad way to live. And you can do that in monogamy. You can do that in non-monogamy. You can do that. As a hippie, you can do that as an investment banker. You can do that shit in whatever disguise you're wearing. And the point isn't to change your disguise, the point is to change the way you inhabit your body, this life, this identity. I've been thinking the other day, I I left an island. And while I was sitting on the boat, and thinking about the things that had happened while I was on that island. This image came to my mind of that moment when you're stepping from the dock onto the boat. You've got a foot on the boat, you've got a foot on the island. The island is where you've been. The island is what you know. And there's always the choice to stay on the island or to pick up the foot that's on the dock and commit to the boat and you don't really know where the boat's going. You have an idea. The boat has a destination. But last time I was in Krabi where I am right now, I took a boat. I guess it was from co P to Krabi, I think. And that's like a couple hours, I think. And the boat broke down in the middle. And we ended up spending the whole day floating in the midday sun. Well, it was a midday all day, but it felt like it to this redheaded correspondent. I thought I knew where that boat was going. Turned out it went somewhere else. We had to get towed somewhere. It was a fucking ordeal. My point is that the boat represents uncertainty and change. Maybe disaster. Maybe wonderment but the island represents where you were and what you knew and and I feel like in our lives we have a series of these moments do I stay or should I stay or should I go to quote the I think it's the kink song right should I continue this journey or do I want to just stay here we do that with relationships we do that with jobs we do that with towns we do that with personal growth Do I want to confront these aspects of myself or am I good? Am I good here? And the thing is, if you pick up your foot from the dock and you get on the boat, you continue the journey. You continue moving into uncertainty, into the future, into potential. If you pick up the foot on the boat, then that's where you're going to be. And there might never be another boat. I don't know if that makes sense or if that's helpful to anyone. And I'll probably flesh that out a little bit more and give you more details on what happened on the island and why that was such a potent image to me. Um, But I don't want to take up too much time on this particular episode with that. This episode is brought to you by OMG Yes, which is the only kind of sponsor that I accept on this podcast and only a very few of them. They're doing really good work. They're awesome. They're doing it really well. It's important. It's, you can see that it's coming from a place of open-heartedness and kindness and acceptance and knowledge and compassion and everything else that's good. Uh, what happened is they got together with Indiana University and the Kinsey Institute, the premier sex researchers in the world, and they talked to tens of thousands of women and asked them, what was the one discovery you've made that made your pleasure better, deeper, stronger, more resonant? And after talking to tens of thousands of women about this, they started to notice patterns. And they organized, and they reshuffled, and they reanalyzed, and they talked to more people, and They organized all that wisdom into this one remarkably open and honest website, omgs.com. If you go there, forward slash Chris Ryan, 10% discount. It's a permanent membership. You pay once, and it's not much. It's like 40 bucks, I think, with the discount, something like that, 45 bucks. you have access forever. Um, There's all sorts of... The videos and essays and photos and instructions and I mean it's just comprehensive it's really cool as I've said before it's not porny at all it's like you are I mean men men who are listening to me how many times have you wanted to be invited into a room where women were friends good friends were talking openly and honestly about their bodies and about their sexuality. About what they experience. Any man who's never wanted that is kind of a douche. Because that means you don't really care. Right? You think you you were born knowing how women work. Well, you weren't. It doesn't work that way. So I am 100% confident that all men listening to this. And all women who are into women listening to this. Are really interested in what makes women tick. And this the other thing that's cool about this website is it it understands that a lot of women's sexuality is about what's happening in their in their minds. It's not just a physical thing. You know, touch me here ten times and there's, you know, counterclockwise and you know fucking the world shifts. That's not how it works. And they understand that. So anyway, OMGS Dot com forward slash Chris Ryan, 10% off. I really recommend it, it's awesome. I go check it out. I mean, Mr. Sex Re- Researcher here, Mr. dawn I learn things every time I go there, and uh, I dig it. Uh, before I go away, I want to say a couple things. First of all, uh, a couple episodes ago, I was ranting about the end of the world as I tend to do sometimes. And I said that the collapse of the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica, that I had read that it was going to raise global sea levels by 30 feet. It's not 30 feet, it's three feet. Three feet, uh, which is still a lot, uh, which will still like sink the land upon which hundreds of millions of people are living. So it's still a big deal. Um, but I think probably what I read was that maybe three feet up meant 30 feet in in many places um but or maybe i just fucking spaced out and misremembered misremembered it but anyway i just wanted to correct that it's three feet sea level rise if that thing goes um not 30 feet higher and i also want to um i don't it's a weird thing i don't want to be doing this all the time uh it it feels self-indulgent um, to use the podcast to say hello to specific people or send love out to specific people. It feels kind of selfish. Um, but there are two people who I want to say something to, Adam and Miguel, who are both dealing with some difficult times right now. Adam is an illustrator who did all the work on um, the Tangentially Reading book, and uh he's a tattoo artist a really good dude i've never met him personally unfortunately but i introduced him to stanley and they spent some time together and um you know he's the kind of guy who just does all this stuff and just he did sketches of everybody really nice detailed beautiful work of every one of the guests and when i said what are we going to pay you for this his his thing was like dude i just want to help you i just want to be part of this i you know contribute this is not a guy who's you know raised in a castle somewhere this is a guy who's who money matters right um but that's that's where his heart's at um and the other guy's miguel who's been listening to this podcast since forever who always leaves every fucking episode, he leaves this some kind of really thoughtful, insightful um, comment. And uh, he and I have become friends. And he's done also illustrations for the other two books, the Tangentially Talking Sex and uh, Drugs. And he's the guy who did the illustration of me looking like a 70s porn star, which is probably my favorite depiction of me ever In some bizarre way, because it's also making fun of me, I know. But that is kind of how I feel inside. Anyway, Miguel, Adam, love you guys, and uh, hope you're doing all right. That is about it. I am going to play you out with one of my all-time favorite songs. And I listened to this song the other day with headphones on or earbuds. and, man, I've listened to this song so many fucking times. I have listened to it over and over and over again. But I Googled the the lyrics. I looked up the lyrics, and there were a couple lines I didn't know. And I listened to it in this, you know, focused way, and I heard things I'd never heard before. Just subtleties and, and beautiful little twists and... um the song's called I'm Worried About You. It's from the Tattoo You album. It's the Rolling Stones. It's a period when the Stones were sort of eh, not eh, sort of between disco and whatever was going to come next. I guess it was in the 80s, I believe. And I've just always loved this tune. It just seems so underrated. You rarely hear it played on the radio or anything. It's uh, kind of bluesy and smooth and. Um, and it's interesting he starts out and the reason I, I thought of this is that it's it's a song kind of about an abusive relationship I guess Um, it's sort of a typical blues song in that he's saying like I don't understand why you do these things to me you know you really hurt me I don't know if I can trust you all that that you hear in so many songs but it's interesting that it begins with and admission he begins by saying yeah you know i stay out late out having fun i guess you know by now that you ain't the only one so he begins by saying yeah i've been lying to you i've been cheating on you and then he goes into but how could you do this shit to me how could you hurt me even though I've already admitted that, yeah, I've been lying to you and I guess you figured that out. And then the other interesting twist is he he's not angry, though. He's, he's disturbed. And you'll hear that the, the refrain he keeps coming back to is, I just can't seem to find my way. Now, that's not her responsibility, right? That's not her fault. So it's there's this vulnerability to it that really struck me that I never really thought about until now. And I've been listening to this song since the album came out, since I lived in New York City in the 80s and before anybody knew who fucking Giuliani was. Like, this song has always touched me and I never really... I mean, I don't know. i still I still don't really know why, but that vulnerability, that, like you hurt me, but, but I know I hurt you too. And I just can't seem to find my way. Like I'm lost, which is not your fault. And then I'm worried about you. Well, why, why is he worried about her? She just hurt him. He's lost, but he's worried about her. He's worried about himself too, right? So it's that sort of like, it's like he's singing into a mirror or something, right? Like, he's worried about her. Why? Because she's capable of lying to him? Because she's the kind of person who could inflict such pain on somebody? Is that why he's worried about her? That she's going to go through her life as this? this person who's able to dole out punishment without realizing it or without caring. Is that why he's worried about her? I don't know. It's fascinating. Um, And, and I don't know if we asked Mick Jagger, I don't know if he could tell us that's the beauty of these things. So it's the Rolling Stones, a beautiful song. And Mick Jagger, by the way, was heartbroken. Uh, around this time. Um and he's been, he's been heartbroken a few times. His current or a few years ago, his the woman he was with killed herself. Um and now he's with someone else, and I think they just had a baby, and the dude's like in his seventies. It's what a life. What a life! And if you listen, if you're into the Stones and you listen to "Miss You," I mean, that's all a song about Bianca Jagger leaving him. That's on uh, that's on the previous album, um, I think. Anyway, enough. Thank you for listening. I am in Krabby Thailand, and I just want a oh, last thing. I saw. I don't know if it was on Reddit or where it was, but so, somebody. Was sort of giving me a little shit like, oh, you know, Mister Minimal Living douchebag is in you know hotel in Thailand and he has no idea how much money, the value of money, because you know best best selling author blah blah blah. I just want to say, and and this isn't to be defensive. This is because I think this is a service to people who are listening to me saying like, okay, good for you, dude. Nice to have the vicarious pleasure, but I, I I can never afford to do what you're doing. We're staying in a place, and this is pretty typical of Thailand. We're staying in a place now, it's Krabi, it's Ray, Rayleigh Beach, or Rayleigh Beach, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Garden View uh, Resort, it's called. Bungalows, view out over the water, uh, beautiful view. Little balcony in the front, shower, fan over the bed, mosquito net. I think it's a queen size bed or something. Uh we're paying twenty well eight hundred bot, which I think is probably twenty two, twenty three bucks a night between the two of us. Um Food runs anywhere from 100, depending what you're eating. But like we had a, a whole red snapper last night for 350 baht, which is 12 bucks, something like that. Um, but you eat, uh, you know, like a Thai dish, like you'd get in a Thai restaurant, curry with rice or, you know, stir fry with rice is like three bucks, 350. So you do the math, it's cheaper to live here than it is to pay rent in most places in the u.s um so this is definitely doable round trip ticket from la to bangkok's like six to seven hundred bucks depending on the time of year um i'm just saying you don't need to be rich to do i'm certainly not rich but you don't need to be rich to do this this is available all you need to do is sort of think it through and get somebody else to pay your rent while you're gone and fucking do it. And it's awesome. All right. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rachel and, uh, go pick up her book. If you do somebody cup. Okay, Rachel, thank you for being here. I'm excited to tell people about this book you wrote. Uh, Is it out yet or is it coming out soon? January
2: 25th.
1: January 25th. Okay, so I'm going to release this around the pub date. That
2: would be awesome. Even though
1: we're recording it a month and a half earlier. So if I die between now and then, (laughs) uh, I'll leave it in my will that this should be released. Okay?
2: Thank you. A real possibility for all of us. Yeah.
1: It, 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 may, it may be the last thing I do. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's it's a very interesting book. And, um, you know, cards on the table, I get approached by a lot of publicists who have, um, you know, authors that they want me to talk to on the podcast. And a lot of those authors are writing about sex, obviously, because that's sort of um, my my thing, I guess. Um, but uh, I rarely am interested because honestly, I feel like I, I feel like the whole open relationship thing is sort of uh in vogue right now, and a lot of people are writing about it just because they sense a market. But when I read your book, I felt like this is um. I don't know how to, I'm not articulating this well at all, but it was like so honest and so courageous um, that the, the sex almost seemed beside the point. It I mean, it happened to involve relationships and it happened to involve open relationships and and power dynamics and all that. But. I think what's so interesting about sex for me, and and I sense it's the same for you, is that it's a reflection of so many other things. Um, Someone said, I think it was Freud who said, um, everything is about sex except sex, which is about power. (laughs)
2: Right. Yeah. A chapter in the book is called It's About Power, making exactly that point.
1: Yeah. Right. So. Uh, can you sort of uh, I don't know if you want to summarize the book so people know what we're talking about or uh, you know just sort of give a brief outline of what you talk about in the book
2: sure thank you so much also just for what you just said I really appreciate it because that's what I'm trying to do is be as honest as possible Um, and sometimes it feels a little almost reckless but it also feels like the natural thing for me to do or Um, really the only kind of thing I'm interested in writing because otherwise what's the point? Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I started writing the book in 2019, but I started thinking about it in 2016 when I was actually still in the midst of the relationship that it sort of follows, um, I was in the unusual situation that an agent approached me seeing some things I'd written on the internet about newly being in an open relationship. And I knew I wasn't ready to write a book at all, but um, the idea that one day uh, all this confusion I was feeling as I adapted to my first non-monogamous relationship, as I struggled with jealousy, and eventually as the relationship progressed and unfortunately went to a a darker place where there is a lot of um, gaslighting and lying and emotional manipulation. I sort of no longer trusted my own sense of reality fully, my own judgment, because I was with a really strong personality that was telling me, you don't know what's best for you. I know what's best for you. And recording... Um, somewhat sporadically, but consistently, actual conversations, journal entries. It became a way of trying to make sense of what was happening and trying to hold on to some version of reality that I could trust.
1: Hmm. So when you were approached by the agent, where were you in the relationship?
2: So I was a year in um, and when I met um, Adam, as I call him in the book, he told me before we even kissed that he, you know, was non-monogamous or wanted to be, but he very much framed it as, you know, I'm looking for a primary partner, someone to share my life with. That's the main priority, but I don't want to restrict anyone else. I'm against it philosophically. And I had been a serial monogamist, and I had read Sex at Dawn and felt very moved by it and felt like, yeah, I want to try this, but I also felt like I have no idea where to start. I'd never met anyone who had any real experience, so I thought, okay, this is good. But when he would bring it up early on, I would start getting jealous and nervous, and um, he made the very generous offer that for as long as I wanted, I mean, there was an implicit end date, but as long as I wanted, we would he would be monogamous and I could do whatever I wanted. And so the first year together, we went to parties. He kind of confessed to me that he was into hot wifing. Um, and so we began to like have MFM threesomes. But, you know, from there, as I started opening up, as things happened, then I met someone who I was having experiences on my own with. And around 2016, I was like, this doesn't feel fair to have it be one-sided, let's open up on both sides. So when that agent approached me, I was maybe a few months into my first grapplings with jealousy and had written the articles online, like, you know, literally, what? why do we get jealous in non-monogamous relationships and researching it and talking with Kathy Labriola and just, like, trying to understand, you know, employ research and reporting to try to kind of overcome my jealousy that I really didn't want to feel. So I was really in the thick of it and in no place to be writing a book. But I was in a place to be kind of documenting the good, the bad, and the ugly, which I saw not only was therapeutic for me, but I also felt could potentially one day be of value to others um, because most of the books around it were kind of, you know, how-to guides or many memoirs were written um, by people in open marriages who were kind of further along in their non-monogamous journey, but I didn't really see anything that was like a depiction of a hot mess that happens sometimes when you open up and, and a hot mess in the beautiful sense, right? Like I was discovering all kinds of kinks. I was exploring my queerness. I was opening up in all these beautiful ways, feeling more liberated than ever before and also feeling more miserable than ever before. <laughs> and I felt like I really wanted to read something that showed how confusing a process unlearning the paradigm of monogamy mm-hmm. could be. So I just mm-hmm. decided to eventually write it myself.
1: Right. Wow. That's well said. I think, you know, people come to me often with questions about these things or seeking relationship advice, you know, and and I think they make the mistake of often of thinking there's a particular way to do non monogamy. And it sounds like what you were discovering was there is the problem is you leave the island of monogamy where everyone knows how to do it. Mm -hmm. Very few people do it the way you're supposed to. Right. Most people Mm -hmm. are lying to themselves, to their partners, cheating. Um, You know, even in their own fantasy world, they lie about who they're attracted to and they're not. Oh, no, I'm not attracted to her. Like, (laughs) come on. Um, But. When you leave that island, you're kind of at sea. There there's no instruction. You know, some people are into polyamory, but there are a million different shades of polyamory. There's swinging and there are lots of different ways of swinging. There's ethical non-monogamy, but what does that mean, you know? <laughs> it, it means something different for every individual and every couple. And then when yeah. you start start adding other people to the picture, it's exponentially more confusing and And complex. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, So, yeah, I don't think there is an easy way. Do you at this point? What advice would you give to someone who was where you were five years ago?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, by all means, you know, read the books that are out there um, and the how to guides and and my book and your book. (laughs) But I think also get support, you know, from whether it be like Facebook groups, your local uh, community some way you can find friends and get some sort of sense of community norms which of course are going to differ but i think that's important also when entering into like a bdsm power dynamic to connect with the kink community which is a lot of what the book is also about so this was not only my first non-monogamous relationship it was also my first dom-sub relationship where i was discovering that i was very into that But unfortunately, it was with a person who didn't believe in BDSM and kind of thought he was above power dynamics. And so even though we were in a very intense power dynamic, you know, of course, that became grounds for some really bad behavior because there was no explicit boundaries, no sense for me as a sub that I could say, stop, you know, and I had no real sense of community norms, um, so that's a lot of, you know, what I would say as well is find a kink friendly or polyamory friendly therapist to talk with, counselor to talk with, coach it can be cost prohibitive, which sucks, but there are people out there. Um, and then also, yeah, like try to find some sort of community because if you just even in a healthy relationship, if you seek to do this alone, I think, it
1: can be very isolating. Yeah, yeah. Specifically because of, of, I think, that multiplicity of ways to do it, you have to design it yourself, and then you're kind of, yeah, it's very isolating because there's no one else who's done it quite that way before Mm -hmm. and can tell you. Uh, It's interesting you said uh, that he felt he was above power dynamics. That's (laughs) such a... I don't know that's such a ironic and sort of meta thing right yeah. like I'm such a dom I'm not even going to admit I'm a, I'm dom. a dom you know <laughs> it's like then there are no rules and then mm-hmm. there's I think another thing that people misunderstand is that I think they're afraid of getting into these worlds even if they're very attracted by them because they think it's like the wild west whereas as you suggested like These communities have very strong sense of boundaries and rules. And, you know, like, uh, you know, one of the most woman friendly places I've ever been is uh, like a swinging party or something, Mm -hmm. right? Where at the door they say, okay. If a woman says no, that's it. You don't touch anyone without asking permission. Like it's right on the table. Yeah. Condoms, you know, like respect and break one rule. One woman complains about your behavior, you're out. You know, it's, but a lot of people don't know it's that way. They imagine it as just being this crazy drunken frenzy. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, it, it's difficult to talk about this stuff Uh And I guess you don't have this particular issue, but for me, there's always a line between wanting to be transparent and talk openly about experiences I've had. And on the other hand, not wanting to, like, expose anyone else. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, You're able to do it in a book. You change the names and you obscure some things and some dates and some locations. And I guess you get away with it. Uh, (laughs) But I haven't managed to do that.
2: Yeah, it's tough. And I mean, I think that, you know, I might change that stuff, but I still grapple all the time with, especially with Adam, my guilt around telling this story, even though I knew I had to do it. And I, I did do it in a nuanced way that came from a place of love. And I know that sounds kind of trite or something of like, yeah, sure. But I really did because I needed to understand the dynamic we were locked in and the mistakes we had made and kind of what was motivating him. And I felt like a lot of the dialogues I was seeing initially um, coming out of like Me Too were definitely very important and helped give me the courage to tell my story. But also for me as a storyteller, sometimes lacked nuance or in the sort of online personal essay it certainly lacks space and I'm not really interested in these like labels of abuser and victim or um, you know villain and, and, and heroine. I feel like it's a story about two and many more flawed people in a very common uh, gendered dynamic And that if we can understand the suffering that was, you know, motivating the behavior that was not so good, then maybe we can figure out a way to move forward. But I definitely struggled not just with the idea of, you know, how it would expose potentially him, um, even if I protect his identity, um, but also just like how it would represent non-monogamy, right? And I think that's a lot of why we don't maybe see yet as much discussion of the things that can go wrong or how abuse manifests or not so healthy uh, behavior manifests in non-monogamous relationships, because we're at a point where we're just trying to get like basic recognition that this is even a valid way to live, you know, and there's no basic rights for no civil protections for people in non-monogamous relationships. So it makes total sense that we want to kind of say like, look, it's great. And like here it's valid, you know, and to kind of emphasize the many good things and the stable relationships. But I feel like it's not until we admit that we're flawed and, (laughs) and human and the things that can go wrong and are vulnerable about that that it really will gain acceptance because it'll kind of just seem like it would seem like non-monogamous people are like these weirdo aliens who never get jealous and never act horrible and um, I saw Carmen Maria Machado in her memoir in the dream house she spoke in a similar way about her hesitancy to speak about the darker sides of her relationship because it was a lesbian relationship and it's been the same thing with queer communities you know didn't want to talk about the dark BDSM community, you know, but I think this is very much part of the trajectory of how marginalized groups gain more acceptance is to just tell more interesting, humanizing stories, honest Mm -hmm. stories that people can relate to. And of course, there's going to be every sort of outcome for non-monogamous relationships, just like there's every sort of outcome for monogamous ones.
1: Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of what's happening with um, psychedelics and, and mm-hmm. other drugs. Uh, there's a guy named Carl Hart who recently wrote a book called Drug Use for Grownups. Yeah, and, it's good. You know, he, he's, he, you know who he is? Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of the same thing. It's like, look, uh, yeah, some people get hurt by drugs. Some people get hurt by, you know, anything you can name. But a lot of people have a very healthy relationship. Um, make mistakes early on and learn from them and get better at it, just like anything else you can name. And certainly relationships and sexuality are the same. I was going to ask you if you think that unconventional relationship dynamics are more likely to lead to problems because of the absence of guardrails, because everybody's sort of blazing their own trail. Hmm. Um, But then as I was thinking of articulating the question, it occurred to me that maybe I should be asking the opposite, which is, do you think that people in unconventional relationships um, maybe have accelerated growth because communication is so vital? because you can't assume anything.
2: Yeah, I mean, of course it depends on the individual, but one of the main points of the book is it's not either or, it's both and. (laughs) Like, you know, it's both those things are probably true, and and the growth often happens from the mistakes, you know, the no mud, no lotus kind of saying. Like, And uh, it gets very complex because one of the things you see me grappling in the book with is, like, I'm very into personal growth, and so it was very hard to distinguish what is the discomfort necessary um, and healthy for adapting to, you know, this whole new way of being in a relationship and what is something that's pushing it too far, um, because there wasn't, you know, many examples around me of other people who are in these situations, um, it was hard to often parse out the difference. And I often felt like a lot of the growth did come from the things that in retrospect were maybe not healthy in the long term, but I I kind of felt like there was no way to go but through for me. But that's also, you know, I, I have a line that I think is like, here was an opportunity for emotional growth as extreme sport. My favorite Pastime next to dancer sizing stoned. And it's like, that's kind of like my hobby. You know, I'm an immersion journalist. Like, I am, you know, probably my next book will involve like trying to confront my fear of death and use a lot of psychedelics and and intense therapies. So that's kind of my thing. I think for everyone else, it's going to be different. And even in my case, as someone who sort of thrives on that, I learned that there are limits that are too far um, or points where I know now that my body is sending clear signals that I'm in fight or flight mode and like need to take a step back. Um, Yeah, so I I think it's, it's both. And I would also say, one thing I learned in researching this book is that over half of women killed in the United States are killed by a romantic partner and i mean yeah in terms of murders and an estimated 12 percent of those murders are associated with jealousy so obviously monogamy is pretty dangerous too and we know that a lot of um some of the worst abuse often stems from you know partners who are being extremely jealous or why'd you talk to that guy? And then it, it escalates. So, you know, I think either way it can be dangerous, but we clearly have lots of evidence of, of ways monogamy in particular can be dangerous for women.
1: Yeah. 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 Jealousy is a strange emotion uh, or, or mixture of emotions I know you had some, you, you described some issues with jealousy. Do you feel that you overcame those issues or deadened yourself? I mean, did you <laughs> resolve them or numb yourself or something else?
2: Well, I definitely saw it was like an exposure therapy, and that by the end of that relationship, things that had felt intolerable to me at the beginning, you know, a first date or kissing felt like nothing, and I was at the point where, you know, he's regularly seeing other people, they're staying over in my bed, and, you know, like, and if I didn't necessarily feel compersion about it every time, but it was, it was fine for me. But I think that a lot of jealousy also exists in that dynamic, not just because um, it was my first open relationship, but because it was in that situation I described where I really didn't feel like saying no was an option, um, mm. and and he kind of would say that I, we were in a primary-secondary relationship, but the goalposts kept moving, and the roles kept shifting, and and we weren't really, and so there was a lot of like being told one thing, but reality was another, and I subsequently found out a lot of other things of you know the few rules we had were being around safety were being broken and so i think i was sensing all of that happening i just didn't necessarily know it fully and and so of course i was feeling more jealous cuz i didn't trust the person i was with nor should i have and right. so now in my relationship with the person i live with i mean i'm not struggling with jealousy at all and find I'm quite turned on by the idea with, of him with other people and kind of encouraging him to seek it out. But it's also much easier because he... It's a, it's a much different power dynamic and he's not as um, motivated to date other people as I am. So I think that automatically changes things. So I would never say oh, I've overcome jealousy. I expect it'll be something I I grapple with, but it continues to soften and change form for me. And I think the main lesson I learned is that um, if you're going to have any sort of partnership where you're spending a lot of time or sharing resources with a person, yeah, a lot of the way you experience jealousy is probably going to depend on how good your communication is, but also probably the the power dynamic and level of trust.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you were approached by the the agent and this idea for a book came to you and um you know, you being an Im- Im- immersion journalist as you said, <clears throat> did you how did that change your experience of the relationship because Part of you is a woman in a relationship, and part of you is a journalist observing a woman in a relationship, right?
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah, and I mean, to. I'm really glad you asked that question because it's one of the main ones I grapple with in the book, and it's kind of one of the things that it kind of sounds like phony, right? Like, oh, then I must have been doing it all for the book. And I really wasn't. As I say, the the motivations fed one another symbiotically. So basically the idea that my life could be viewed as a story helped me often dissociate more effectively, but also develop some healthier habits of sort of looking at what was happening as an outsider so that when I was jealous... I could not be as caught in the jealousy, but also be looking at it as a reporter and be like, this is interesting. What's happening right now, you know? And then as the relationship continued to go more and more towards a place where um, I was basically totally under his mind and control and I didn't trust my own judgment over his, the idea that... um, This would all be for some greater purpose one day or for a book became like just some sort of light at the end of the tunnel of like either I'm going to get out of this situation or I'll come through the other side of it. But otherwise, I'm not, you know, like I'm not going to ever be able to write a book without having some trust in my own cognition. So if I ever want to achieve that goal, it can't stay like this forever. Um, And I think also the idea of writing a book helped me explore to the extremes that he wanted me to. Um, Like he was always pushing me to explore more to, um, you know, we would kind of like reach one level and then it was time to reach the next level of polyamory and when it was... You know, once I got comfortable with one thing, then it was time for, like, relationship anarchy. And then, it, you know, it was more and more. And so the idea that I could view it as a journey helped me kind of, like, push myself to keep going at his pace. Did um, he
1: know you were you were thinking about a book?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. And, um, you know, his credit, was super encouraging of it. He was also... Um, into studying desire more from an academic perspective. But because he was also so uh, dominant and kind of arrogant, he was like, I have nothing to hide, I'm great. You know, so like he wasn't worried about any of it. And um, because of that, I was... You know, I guess in retrospect, very lucky that he let me, I would, you know, sometimes we'd be in the middle of a really intense conversation or argument. I'd be like, Can I record this? And he'd be like, Yeah, whatever. And so I have these kind of unprecedented records of like (laughs) how, you know, not just an open relationship or dom sub-relationship can progress, but also just a relationship that becomes increasingly unhealthy. Um, and where one person wields all the power, pretty much how that happens in a very incremental and subtle way that um, I've found a lot of people reading it relate to and appreciate um, because it's a very hard thing to explain the mechanics of in retrospect. Like we say gaslighting and it's almost like, oh God, okay. It's like this word that's thrown around a lot and you're kind of like, Oh, it's like so everyone can feel like a special snowflake or something. But it's a real thing that has real psychological impacts that can be very destructive. And speaking as someone who's both, you know, experienced physical violations and then also, you know, a lot of gaslighting and emotional um, verbal berating and abuse. It's the emotional stuff that left much more of a scar, but it's very hard to explain in retrospect because it's so, when someone's good at it, it's so um, masterful. That's how they get control of your mind, and it's not even conscious usually on their part. They just believe they're really right and know better than you, and they often are really good at explaining how anything you're feeling is the result of your fears or your societal you know, limitations or whatever your points may be of entry. And so, yeah, I felt like, okay, if I can, like, I'm so in this and I knew I used to be a smart, self-assured person and something has happened to me that's pretty drastic where I can't not be on drugs every day, where I can't um, trust my own mind, where I'm anxious all the time and, and all of this. So maybe if I can get a record of this, it'll help people someday, and so that's what I did, and and now in the book we have, you know, a conversation that's one chapter that's very emblematic of exactly how this dynamic works, and psychologists commenting on the footnotes of like, okay, here's what's happening here, and really breaking it down in a specific way that's not, I hope, about blame, but about just understanding psychology of, of these dynamics and how people get locked in it.
1: Yeah. Have you thought about how you writing this book is plays into the power dynamic?
2: Mm. What do you mean? Say more about that.
1: Well, I I was thinking when, when you described him saying, yeah, sure, go ahead, record the conversation. I don't care like that, that on one level is him being dominant saying i'm not afraid of you recording this i have nothing to hide that's you know but then a couple years later you come out with a book and he presumably had no chance to edit or dispute or you know add his own chapters or whatever right um so i i guess what i'm getting at is that you know, we were talking earlier about people's misunderstandings about, um, you know, the BDSM community or swingers clubs or whatever. Uh, I think another thing that that people misunderstand is that they think power dynamics are simple. This person's dominant, this person's submissive, and that's what happens. But they don't understand that, they're like layers of onions around that (laughs) yeah where like okay wait if he's being dominant because she gets off on it isn't she being dominant because Mm. he's doing what she wants him to do that turns her on right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so okay you know on the surface it's like he's spanking her But maybe he's not into spanking her. Maybe he's just doing it because she likes to be spanked. So now who's dominant here, you know? Um, And so it's just always this weird jujitsu, I I find, uh, is happening. And in a healthy power dynamic, those things are, it's like a, you know, a spinning yin-yang of kindness and consideration and compassion. And like everybody wants to make everybody feel good. So then it's awesome. Yeah. But it can also be. It can also spin the other way, yeah. Where everyone is like trying to push someone else's face in the dirt,
0: and
2: <laughs> it
1: goes spinning that way, you know.
2: Right? Yes. It's fucking, it's yeah. I mean, I think that's why you need to talk about it, right? And so right. one of the main, I think, lessons from the book is like this is probably not going to go well if if you can't even acknowledge in the first place that you're in this dynamic because yeah. you think you're above them and people who are, um, you know, he would say, like, people who are into BDSM are just kind of playing make-believe or pretending, and so there was this sort of arrogance of, like, we're just being ourselves, you know? And it's this very, like, private um, thing, and then you kind of take on that snobbery, or I did, of just, like, oh, no one understands him, you know, when they're saying they're concerned, because like he's just such a dom he's like can't even admit he's a dom and we're just being ourselves and like if we don't really need these rules or boundaries because that would kill the authenticity and what i you know learned later in writing it i think for me certainly when you asked about power yes it was about taking some of my power back absolutely it was an attempt to recover my own Mind my own trust in my own capability after a long time of kind of getting the message that I couldn't take care of myself or wasn't capable or ready to write a book. It was definitely very motivating to be like, I'm going to do it. (laughs) You know, like I'll show you. Yes. It started as that partially, but it was mostly like, I just needed to understand, okay, how do I move forward? Like what just happened? And how do I move forward? Because I still want to be non-monogamous. And I still want at least some of those relationships to be dom-sub-dynamics. So I need to, like, do some interviews and research to find out how to do this in a way that's healthier. And so, yeah, through the process of kind of learning where we've gone wrong and examining that within myself, but also talking to all these, you know, sex coaches and sex therapists and psychologists i got a better idea of how to move forward with establishing healthier relationships
1: yeah yeah i i'm do you know that i have a an avn award do you ever hear this sorry no yeah do you know what an avn award is no It's it's the the oscar of porn
2: Oh, cool. I'm, I should I, know that. It sounds like,
1: yeah. It's my only award. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's on my, like, Twitter handle, you know, like, New York Times best-selling author, AVN award winner. That's it. That's all I've got. That's but, uh But, um, and people who listen to this podcast have heard me tell this story a thousand times, so I, I won't go into it too much. But you, uh, you reminded me of it because the movie I was in. Um, was a movie where a couple is opening their relationship and the woman's a documentary filmmaker.
0: Oh,
2: wow.
1: She's uh, feeling jealous because her boyfriend's hooking up with these really beautiful women. And so she, as a way to sort of deal with her insecurity and and her jealousy, she decides she's going to make a film about relationships. (laughs) And she interviews me as me, as myself, to talk about Sex at Dawn.
2: Oh my gosh, and that's so
1: cool. So it's like a movie within a movie. So it's a, it's exactly what you were doing, you know, interviewing these people as a way to work on your book, but also as a way to sort of, you know, guide your own personal life. Um, I
2: definitely need to watch that then. Yeah, and there's nothing new about it, right? You know, I think like and but there is a double standard still when when a man does something somewhat Similar, he's an immersion journalist, you know, mm. and he's or he's a he's writing literary fiction out of his experiences. And when a woman writes about relationships or her experiences, she's confessional erotica or she's, um, you know, doing it for attention or just for the material. And it's like artists are always drawing from their life and it's a it's a sort of chronic condition that writers especially write to feel some sense of control over their human experience you know if you can turn it into a story um or this kind of tangible object that'll be left behind after you then maybe you can forget for a second you're going to die soon <laughs> you know i think that's what it all pretty much comes down to so i don't i don't think it's anything new i just think that it's interesting to examine the inherent biases that exist based on gender around, you know, what's journalism, what's literary, um, and how does gender influence those judgments? And also how does topic influence those judgments? You know, why, why is writing about sex or relationships lighter than writing about even sports to some people is like a more serious thing, hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's like what motivates us more than sex and relationships as you know like what what more serious topic in some ways could there be at the core yeah. of everything but of course it's considered you know often frivolous
1: yeah it's funny that I read somewhere that um Something like 40% of all books sold are erotica. Yeah, romance Uh, novels. Yeah, but it's not even included in the New York Times bestseller categories. Mm -hmm. It's just off the charts, literally off the charts in both senses, um, because it's not considered real somehow. And yet, as you say, it's ubiquitous. It's something we think about constantly. It's it's amazing. Um, I was I was talking to someone earlier who explained to me that uh, th- there's been this strange historical um, migration from the sort of uh, self embodied, powerful sexual woman, you know, the sort of sacred prostitutes of ancient Greece and and many cultures. Uh, has been mistranslated to virgin, and so like the Vestal virgins were not virgins at all. They were, they were self embodied uh, prostitutes. Well, not even prostitutes because they were having sex as a as an offering to the gods, not for money. Um, and so there is this strange kind of like uh, woman who does not exist within the domestic arrangement of marriage becomes virgin, (laughs) totally desexualized. You know, it's such a weird... Uh, sanitization but i don't even want to say sanitization because you know i think the whole virgin thing is dirtier than the the, you know the (laughs) self-empowered sexual woman yeah yeah (laughs) yeah it's so weird and then we were talking about like oh i wonder if and and neither of us know this but like because it doesn't make any sense you know in the quran that you would do something you sacrifice yourself you know in some noble way and you would be like in heaven with a bunch of virgins like that doesn't make sense but when you think about it and you know it's like self-embodied sexual women like fuck yeah that's heaven you know i always
2: thought it was like they're virgins who are soon to not be virgins
1: but even that where's the fun in that you know (laughs) like (laughs) give me like three hot women who know what they're doing uh, over any number of virgins. I don't have time to teach them. Come on. Uh, Anyway, so I, uh, this was all part of a conversation I was having earlier with, with two women friends of mine. And, uh, it's very interesting because one of the women was saying, I want a man, I want to have a relationship with a man who is going to, you know, take care of me, make me feel safe. And she didn't mean financially. She meant mm-hmm. emotionally, like, be protective and and strong in a, in a healthy kind of nurturing way. And I, I want to be his good little girl. I mm-hmm. want to serve him. I want to, like, do anything to make him happy. And I want him to tell me what to do. And I want... And the other woman was like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. That's exactly what I've always been looking for. And my question to them, and now I'll ask you, is, is this something that most, is this like bedrock that underlies most women's psychology that some women dig down far enough and they hit the rock like you did and these women have? Or because it I mean, I've known a lot of women in my life and almost all of them. Mm -hmm. If you dig down deep enough, you hit this.
2: Right. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for all women, but I think as in all things, it's probably a mix of, you know, evolution and socialization. Right. And so I don't. I think it's a little dangerous if we say like it's inherent or something because it's so impossible to separate from the centuries of um, women like adapting to being submissive and property and that, you know, perhaps we could view it that through that lens of that. It's like in basically an adaptation to patriarchy
3: Um,
2: and also that it's we've been socialized to feel like this is what a man is. So if you're attracted and this is what a woman is and so if you're attracted to um, men as a woman then it it makes you feel like you're kind of achieving what's expected and that can be in some ways very rewarding. I think also um, you know one of the things I've learned about kink is that we might view being submissive as uh, sort of another adaptive strategy for anxiety. And so it makes sense that mm. many women would experience more anxiety in the bedroom and outside of it. Um, in that, you know, there's still don't have equal rights. There's people trying to legislate our bodies still. Um, and then there's just the general constant messaging that we're not, sexy enough or not this enough or not that enough we're always you know having to be all these impossible things at once and certainly men experience that to a degree too but it's so much more permitted within heterodynamics that a woman escape that anxiety through submission now what i've yeah. found since i started exploring my submissiveness and also my ability to be dominant to be a switch is that if you dig deep enough or even bother to ask any man, he also has that desire. It's just much less permitted for him to express it. It's it's much more taboo. But I've found men, because of the weight they're carrying, to always be strong, to not express emotions, to not cry, which is incredibly oppressive, God, you top them for like five minutes and they start weeping and it's like incredibly (laughs) cathartic for them and beautiful. And so I think that everyone has probably some degree of both sides to them Mm -hmm. and, and the desire to submit, to escape their own anxiety, especially during sex, um, and just be told what to do and, and not worry about performing. Um, but yeah, that it's more permissible for women, and there's more socialization around it, and perhaps more of an evolutionary coping mechanism.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, there are those layers of onion again. Yep. It's always so complicated. Really interesting. Um, do you ever read the story Cat Person?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I love that whole collection. Is she's so good?
1: She's a very good writer. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting how she deals with these same issues. It's very nuanced and layered. And um, did you hear about the, I I actually, I I do a thing on this podcast sometimes where I'll read a piece of writing that I particularly love and sort of unpack it, you know, for the audience. And I read that story as one of the episodes. And uh, did you hear about the, what happened later? That it turned out that it was actually about a real person who was not consulted.
2: Oh, I did not.
1: Oh yeah, yeah there's there's a follow up. If I if, I'll try to remember to send you a link to it or something. Um, but I guess what happened was that the woman who wrote the story was go. I think she was going out with a guy, and the guy told her some stories about his ex. Uh huh. And the ex was the woman who worked in the theater, you know, who hooked up with the guy and she was 10 years younger or whatever. I forget all the details. And then, so then it was that guy's next girlfriend who wrote the story. Wow. And so some of the first girlfriend's friends read it and they're like, Hey, didn't you work in that theater? And didn't you, I remember you went out with that guy who was older than you and all that. And, and, uh, so it was a pretty, it, strange context for the the story itself Mm
2: -hmm.
1: yeah crazy
2: yeah i Um, mean anyone who talks to a writer should just assume and (laughs) dates a writer i mean i've learned through getting to know so many more fiction authors in the last few years that yeah they're writing their lives too they just are changing more details and timelines and stuff but Every even when it's like speculative fiction, they're taking something from their lives. Otherwise, where would they begin? You know, yeah, <laughs> like how yeah. would they have any emotional understanding of the right. subject?
0: Right.
1: Yeah, it's inevitable. Um So what are you what are you doing next? I guess you're going to be promoting this and, and that's going to be. Promoting a book is always interesting and difficult and weird, but this seems like it could be particularly (laughs) uh, strange. Uh, Is this an issue with your family or your current partner? I mean, there's a lot of intimacy being shared here.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm very lucky that my family is very supportive, sometimes almost a little too supportive, like that I wish... Like, my dad's like, I want to read it. And I'm like, I kind of would like to send you a redacted version. And he's like, I don't care. Like, you're an adult, you know, like, I know you have sex. And I'm like, yeah, but do you really need all these images in your head? You know, so if anything, any of my struggles are just with their lack of giving a shit. (laughs) But, But, yeah, I'm lucky that I'm very supported by them, my partner, and my friends, and everyone. Um... I mean, I'm nervous, but I'm also mostly excited, like, to get to have conversations like this one, unpacking so many of the things I've spent years mostly alone thinking about is just yeah. fun and rewarding and makes me feel like it's not just sent out into the void. So I think that I wrote, I wrote the book for many different reasons, but one of them was to, you know help kind of throw a big rock through the window of shame that exists around so many of these topics as you did with your book you know and um I'm hoping that this can yeah just make a big hole for others to walk through and also make more holes and and like that mine is just one of many narratives but because I'm so privilege to be in a situation where I'm not going to be disowned by my family, where, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I am not going to lose my job. In fact, it's, it is the job to write about it. Like those two things alone are huge privileges. I don't have children, so I don't have to worry about that. I'm, I'm white. So that comes with a whole set of privileges in terms of how much harassment I'll face um, for being out about all these things. But But yeah, I mean, I'm scared. I already have gotten things calling me a slut before. And, you know, but I feel like I'm used to that. I just am more scared of if there's ever threats against my safety. Like, I hope I don't ever feel um, not safe in the world at all. But also, like, the fact that I haven't had to feel that speaks to my degree of privilege, right? So, like, if not... Me, someone who has generally had the privilege of feeling relatively safe in the world, can't speak about these things. What does that say for other people who are not in those positions? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just felt like I want to help, do what I can to open up many different conversations and and crack as much shame as I can because I feel like shame is a very destructive emotion from lots of different angles um and that many of us are caught in a lot of it when it comes to our desires our relationships sex gender where to go from here in terms of um relational dynamics in a post me too world like how do you even talk about this shit so i'm just kind of interested in exploring all of it as vulnerably as i can
1: yeah. Well, you did a really nice job and I appreciate your your work and your candor and your your balls if I can say that <laughs> if that's not too confusing. My
2: my ovaries,
1: yeah. <laughs> your brass ovaries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said you should always write posthumously. And I thought, yeah, and you started out the conversation by saying, if you don't, if you're not honest, what's the point? Right. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's like if you're not going to really lay it out there. Yeah. Right about sports. Right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think I understand why people are not. But for me as a reader, it's often been frustrating when I read memoir and I can feel the writer holding back or or not showing their fully flawed selves but only showing other people as flawed and, you know, it's hard to it's hard to connect because that's not what the genre is about you know, it it should be a very vulnerable one I understand why people don't want to go there but it's what makes it satisfying
1: Well, I don't know how I would do this, but I'm very attracted to the idea of writing some sort of a memoir. And it would probably have to be an erotic memoir because that's by far the most interesting part of my life. But, you know, I mean, nobody wants to read a fucking erotic memoir from a 60-year-old white dude. Um, I don't but, know
2: about that.
1: Well, but People just the-
2: were into, like, my struggle, and that's hardly erotic at all, but he's he's an older... You know, white dude just recording his life for years, and people read all the volumes just because it was so honest and unbelievable mm. that he was admitting all this stuff. Mm.
0: Right. Yeah. I think you'd
2: be great at doing that, and and something kind of like how mine is in terms of weaving in a lot of the the knowledge that you have, you know, using your experience to con, like contextualizing it. Right, I think it could be very cool that. Yeah, I don't know. With my book, I was just really interested in, like, why does it have to be erotic memoir or, like, removed journalistic account? Why can't it be both at the same time? Because it represents this stupid stratification and binary we have of, like, there's, you know, eroticism and then there's respectability. And a lot of the statement of my book is, like, no, you're going to have to, like, contend with both these things existing at once in me. Like you're, you're going to get turned on and you're going to learn some things. (laughs) Like both of those things are going to happen.
1: Like life itself. Yeah. 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 I mean, what attracts me to it isn't even, I mean, you're much more altruistic in terms of, you know, thinking about how it can benefit the reader, but I mean, what attracts me to it is primarily just the idea of the exercise of sitting down and being as brutally honest as I can possibly be, you know, like that kind of writing, which I haven't done professionally, I've, you know, done it privately. But to do that publicly, um, feels like it would be a psychological process, uh, like an exfoliation of the soul or something, you know, yes. like really interesting. So I, I really applaud you for having done that, and I hope you'll continue to do it.
2: Thank you. I plan to.
1: Good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I'm gonna let you go now because the battery on my computer is down to seven oh, okay. percent. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't want this to end in a yeah. you know, mid-sentence. Right, uh, right, Rachel, Krantz, Krantz. Krantz, yeah. <laughs> thing. Um, where can people learn more about you? Do you have a, a dedicated webpage f- just for yourself or for the book? or what?
2: Yeah, I do. It's um, racheljkrantz.com. My Twitter and Instagram handles are just my name, Rachel Kranz. Um And then you can find open and uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy wherever books are sold um, with... The- your wonderful endorsement on the cover so Sweet. thank you so much for that and for having this conversation with me is really fun
1: yeah well i hope it brings some people your way
2: thank thanks you. rachel all right thanks
1: all right i hope you enjoyed that conversation with rachel krantz the book again is open and uh just came out in bookstores everywhere and um Go to omgs.com forward slash Chris Ryan if you want to explore the wonders, the beauties of women's bodies, which are, I mean, I know it sounds sappy, and I've, but I've said this to women in the past. Like, to me, looking at a woman is like looking at a mountain, a rainbow, a fucking sunset, you know, it's it's nature. She is nature, and I know men are nature too. But I look at man; and it's like, yeah, good looking dude. I look at a woman like, oh, sunset, stars, the moon. Maybe that's just me. But omgs.com dot com forward slash Chris Ryan. Uh, it's an excellent way to learn even more and appreciate even more this particular aspect of our natural world which is contained in our lovely, lovely women. Thanks for listening. Here's Mom and Carcy Blanton, two of the loveliest women I know.
3: Well, we of course have lots of civilized to death shirts in all sizes and still quite a few Sex at Dawn shirts in all sizes. Now some sizes are limited in the other categories but I'm sure we can find something that would fit you
1: (laughs) and what else do they have are there books there's the tangentially reading book
3: yes we have the sex at dawn book signed by the author himself we have civilized to death books signed by the author
1: and will you sign the books as well mom for a for a low low price
3: oh sure I'll write anything (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs>
3: All right. as chris once told our daughter when she tried to forge a letter to uh, her school you should have had mom do that she'll write anything <laughs> we also have beer koozies or cozies or whatever right and we have stickers and decals
1: so get those orders in give mom something to do give her a reason to go talk to the ladies at the post office
4: He said, Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time?